obedient to the things that you show us today. In your name, amen. <clears throat> While the worst, with the worst premonition, he opened the envelope and read a letter with trembling hands. Dear Dad, it is with great regret and sorrow that I am writing you. I had to elope with my new girlfriend because I wanted to avoid a scene with you and Mom. I've been finding real passion with Joan, and she's so nice. I knew you would not approve of her because of all of her piercings, tattoos, and her tight motorcycle clothes, and because she is so much older than I am, but it's not only passion, Dad, she's pregnant. Joan says that we're going to be very happy. She owns a trailer in the woods and has a stack of firewood enough for the whole winter. We share a dream of having many more children. Joan has opened my eyes to the fact that marijuana doesn't really hurt anyone. We'll be growing, growing it and trading it with other people in the commune for all the uh, ecstasy we might want. In the meantime, we'll pray that science will find a cure for AIDS so Joan can be better. Uh, so she deserves that. Don't worry, Dad. I'm 15 years old now. I know how to take care of myself. And someday, I'm sure we'll be back to visit you so you can get to know your grandchildren. Your son, Chad. P.S. Dad, none of the above is true. I'm over at Tommy's house. I just wanted to remind you that there are worse things in life than the report card that's in my desk drawer. <laughs> I love you. Call me when it's safe to come home. Oh, yeah. Well, while I've been spending a great deal of time at home trying to take care of my husband, I've also used some of that time to go through closets and get rid of things. We get used to having things around that really have no use and no benefit for us. And our passage today, it speaks about putting aside or getting rid of certain sinful behavior that's crept into our lives, as they serve no purpose except to drag us down spiritually and to destroy our desire for the Word of God. So as we begin this chapter 2, we see privileges as well as responsibilities that come with our salvation. So how do we grow in our faith? Well, he begins in verse 1. Therefore, putting aside all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander, like newborn babes, long for the pure milk of the word so that by it you may grow in respect to salvation if you have tasted the kindness of the Lord. So if you know Jesus as your Savior, then you are blessed with many, many privileges as well as many responsibilities to grow in your faith. And as we begin this chapter, the first word is therefore, which as you know, we have to go, okay, therefore what? Based on everything he just said in chapter one. <clears throat> because we've been born again with an imperishable seed of the word of God, because God has done a work of salvation in our hearts, that makes it possible for us to be transformed as we grow in his truth, because we have an imperishable inheritance reserved for us, protected by God, because suffering has a purpose, because redemption by Christ is possible because of his blood, for all of these reasons, we must put aside sin. This really is a picture of a person taking off their coat in order to make faster progress. You cannot grow in your Christian life unless sins are gotten rid of and forsaken and dealt with. When we do this kind of purging, then the word of God does a work in our hearts. This putting aside in the Greek word means to put it away once for all. And what are we to put away? Well, the first is malice, which is a wicked desire, wickedness desiring to harm someone in some way. It would also include an unforgiving spirit, 
and bitterness from within towards other people. And often what follows that sin is deceit and hypocrisy. All believers should have no deceit in our mouths, never deliberately telling a lie or exaggerating or being dishonest. Hypocrisy comes from the idea of an actor wearing a mask as they pretend to be something that they are not. It is a failure to be genuine or to be consistent with your claim as a believer. And how often are we guilty of doing this? If a video, unbeknownst to you, were placed in your home and caught you on video and how you speak and how you maintain your testimony and how you live in your home and then was played up here on Sunday morning, um, I wonder if hypocrisy would be the title of that movie. <laughs> Do you act nothing like you act in public when you're at home? You must get rid of hypocrisy and be a genuine person God called you to be in your home, at your church, in a restaurant, in a grocery store, driving in your car, wherever. A believer is to be open and sincere and transparent. And we're also told there's to be no envy, no resenting what other people have that you don't have. Such sinful attitudes lead to carrying a grudge because you are bitter towards others who have what you don't have. And this is resentful discontentment. And I remind you, it was the sin of envy that controlled the religious leaders of Jesus' day that drove them to have him murdered. Envy is like a cancer. It has to be cut out of your life. And slander has no place in the life of a believer. This means we are not to speak of others to hurt their reputation or their character. We're not to gossip about others, about their sins, their faults, because we all have them. Instead of evil speaking, we are to rejoice when others actually get ahead. The term malice includes so many different sins and all these, this few lists that he begins with. All of these are sins that must be repented of and put off and gotten rid of in our hearts. Our lives are to be characterized by repenting of such sins and putting off such rotten clothes so that we're set free to obey what it says here in verse 2. Spiritual growth is evident in our lives if we have a craving and a longing to know God's word. And the level of desire is to compare to that of a newborn babe and their longing for their mother's milk to be nursed. The milk here is a reference to the word of God. It's not contrasting the meat of the word and the milk of the word. <clears throat> Peter is speaking of a believer having a deep, ongoing longing for God's word. The sins just mentioned destroys your appetite for God's word. And so can other behaviors uh, that simply dull our interest in spiritual things. And this is why Peter has begun this section by first telling believers, take action, put off the sins in your life. Repent, and then you'll be able to enjoy the word of God and to grow. Verse 3 reminds us that the moment we trust Christ for salvation, we experience how gracious God really is to us, and that we should, that should drive us to seek more of his grace and desire to know his word. We've all tasted his kindness in our lives if we've trusted him as Savior. How can we then ignore and cling to the sins that he paid for by hanging on the cross for you? It goes on to talk about our union with Christ in verses 4 and 5. And coming to him as to living stone, which has been rejected by men, but is choice and precious in the sight of God, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood 
to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So coming to Jesus brings us to the place of spiritual privilege here. This isn't coming to Jesus for salvation here. That's not what he's talking about. But rather coming to him with that close, intimate fellowship. Being someone who is in the habit of talking with the Lord throughout the day, laying in bed at night. Then Peter uses the picture of a living stone to speak of Jesus. He is the cornerstone, the perfectly designed stone to be the living stone on which the church is built. He lives forever, having risen from the dead. He's the one who gives life to all who trust him. Jesus was rejected and continually put to the test by the religious leaders who did not approve of him. And here was God's precious son who rose from the dead, but their hard hearts rejected him. In verse 5, Peter emphasizes that believers are a part of a community, which means we're not to live isolated lives. You are to be a part of a church and not just attending, but connected to people. If you know Christ, then you too have become a living stone in a spiritual house, which is the church of Jesus Christ. And not only are believers a part of this body, but we're also a holy priesthood. In Judaism, the priest came only from the tribe of Levi. However, in Jesus, every believer is a priest. And there is no further need for the priesthood of bringing sacrifices in order for men to get right with God. Each believer can go directly to God and offer spiritual sacrifices of their own. Such sacrifices would be, Romans 12, 1, present your body as a living sacrifice, offering up a sacrifice of praise and thanksgiving, and sometimes in the worst of trials and pain, that is a sacrifice to give thanks. And offering up praise uh, and ministering to the needs of people, Hebrews thirteen sixteen. These are all ways we bring sacrifices to the Lord that are acceptable to God because we offer them through Jesus. Then Peter goes on to quote from Isaiah 28, Psalm 118, and Isaiah 8:14. He says, For this contained in Scripture, behold, I lay in Zion a, ch- a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. This precious value, then, is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve, the stone which the builders rejected, this became the very cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. For they stumble because they are disobedient to the word, and to this doom they were also appointed. But you, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, so that you might proclaim the excellencies of him who has called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Peter is showing his readers that Christ's position as the chief cornerstone of this spiritual building was foreordained by God, and those who believe in the stone find him precious. They know peace, calmness of spirit. It is hard to fathom that those who come to Jesus by faith for salvation could actually be be described then as a chosen race and a royal priesthood. A holy nation, a people for God's own possession. We have been called out of the darkness of sin into the marvelous light of the truth. We don't deserve any of this, but this is what God has done for his own. Our culture and society often looks down on believers as narrow-minded, bigoted, stupid, weird people, but that is not how God sees the believer. In these verses, Peter takes takes terms usually spoken of concerning Israel and applies it to the church. This does not mean that the church is Israel 
or even that the church replaces Israel in God's plan. But right now, God's focus, God's attention is building the church. In the future, he will once again turn his attention to the nation of Israel. We've touched on that in our studies of prophecy when the tribulation begins. So this is all the loving initiative of God to bring believers to himself and make them kingly priests. In the Old Testament, Levitical priests were only priests. But in this church age, believers are king priests. We are united with a royal priest and we serve and obey the king. And one day in the future, we will rule with him. According to 1 Corinthians 6 and Revelation 5.10. So being a people of God's own possession, the truth is we have great worth and value, not because of who we are, but because of the one who possesses us. And why has God done all of these things for his children? So that we would live lives that reflect him and his qualities and his character. We are to be witnesses of the glory and grace of God who has called us out of the darkness. We once were not a people, but now we have the privilege of being the people of God who actually experience his amazing mercy. Imagine that God would actually take a group of people like us, outsiders with no rights, no claims to his grace, and has included them in his program and plan and salvation. Everything that God has done for the believer has been accomplished for God's glory so that he alone will receive the praise. He alone is the worthy one. But there are those who have rejected this stone. To them, Jesus is a stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, like a loose pebble on a path when you're walking down a trail or a hill and you slip because the rocks just move and you stumble. It is their unbelief and their disobedience that they are appointed then to doom because of that. They refused to accept the stone. They just stumbled over the stone. Now Peter is going to talk about some practical application in our lives, really starting from verse 11 all the way to chapter 3, verse 12, which we'll finish up and look at next week. But how should believers deal with critics? Beloved, I urge you as aliens and strangers to abstain from fleshly lusts which wage war against the soul. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles, so that in the thing in which they slander you as evildoers, they may, because of your good deeds, as they observe them, glorify God in the day of visitation. So we are reminded here that we are pilgrims and foreigners. You know we're not citizens of this earth. And as strangers, we're different. We have a different way of thinking than the world and the culture. We have different values, different goals, different everything. And we are to, therefore, abstain from fleshly lusts, which wage war against the soul. Clearly, there is a war going on every day of our lives. We are in a battle with our own flesh, as well as Satan's onslaughts, as well as our culture. The word abstain literally means hold yourself back from. So we are to hold ourselves back from doing the things which before salvation we did naturally and we did all the time. The lusts that we all battle with are the cravings or strong desires for those things which are not right. And this is not talking about sexual lust. This is lust for food. This is lust for money. This is lust, lust for pleasure. This is lust for whatever. These wrong desires and lusts are an army of rebels that really try to destroy a believer's joy and their peace and their usefulness and their witness to their own family and the world around them. So the question is, are you engaged in this war on a daily, moment-by-moment -moment basis? Are you just walking through life? 
you have to be engaged as you're in a war. Otherwise, these sins mentioned in chapter, in the first one, will creep in and overtake your life and destroy your love for God's word and your testimony as well. Instead, we are told in verse 12 to keep our behavior excellent among unbelievers. We are to be winsome. We are to be gracious women. We are to be noble. We are to be pure. We are to have lives that are disciplined, that we live out among the non-believers we rub shoulders with. And I know for many of you, that's rubbing shoulders in your own home every day. A believer's behavior should be so lovely and morally excellent that slander just proves to be false. The world watches to see what kind of a person a professing believer really is. So how are you doing as his representative? Well, in this next section, Peter's going to now get more specific about certain areas in our lives. And he's going to talk next about believers honoring authorities in your lives. Submit yourself for the Lord's sake to every human institution, whether to a king as the one in authority or to governors as sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the praise of those who do right. For such is the will of God that by doing right you may silence the ignorance of foolish men. Act as free men and do not use your freedom as a covering for evil, but use it as bond slaves of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, and honor the king. So as Peter gets very practical and giving application and instructing believers, he talks about what kind of citizens we ought to be. The truth is, as we've said, our citizenship is not even here on earth. But even though that is the case, we are not to disregard the government authorities that we find ourselves living under. When Peter wrote this, it was a horrible, evil time when Christians were accused of having set fire to Rome by Nero, who was a madman murderer and was in control. It was a false lying accusation, and many believers were murdered as a result. Remember, Jesus said, we are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. We are also to pray for kings and all those in authority, 2 Peter 2, or Timothy 2.2. 2. Paul wrote on the same subject in Romans where he clarified the purpose of government. What is the purpose of government? It is to punish evildoers and reward those who do good. Peter said the same thing here. It's for the Lord's sake that we are to submit to government. Now, we know from the book of Acts that government, when they command us to sin, we must obey God rather than man, as well as when they demand we don't do what we're commanded to do. That is why all around the world, probably right now as we meet, our secret house churches gathering, secret Bible studies, secret worship times, because the governments they live under will arrest them or take away their children if they dare to teach them, and on and on it goes. So are they not meeting no, they're meeting because God says you meet. You don't forsake the fellowship of yourselves together. But God commands believers, as I said, to gather for worship, and he and his word has to be what our authority is. As citizens, we are to pay our taxes, and that's coming up pretty soon, um, and pray for our leaders. Even if a leader is a Nero, as in Peter's time, we're to pray for leaders, we're to submit to government, as I said, unless they oppose God's word to us. So far, as of today, we live in a land that still allows us to vote uh, for government officials, which hopefully will allow us to elect, the, to elect those who will help us to be able to live a peaceful life where we can share the gospel. That's not the case around the world. It's still the case here. 
And the reason we're to submit to authorities that are in our lives is that we should be able to silence the ignorance of foolish men by doing what is right. In other words, as believers, our behavior and our good conduct should be a testimony even to the enemies of the gospel. Our purpose for being left on earth is not to overthrow governments or transform governments. Rather, we are to be a light that points people to Jesus, who is the only one who can change hearts. And he is the one who will one day rule on this planet with a rod of iron. But when we share the gospel with people, it is God who changes the heart. That is the only way a heart's going to be changed to want to not want to murder babies, to not want to change genders, or ignore what God says about the family. It's not by laws being passed. It's only by the transformation of the gospel in a person's heart. Well, in verse 16, Peter reminds us that we have freedom in Christ, but that freedom doesn't release us from the responsibility of being citizens that submit to our civil government. We can never use our freedom as an excuse to disobey God. We're to honor all people, why? All people are created in the image of God. We are to love our fellow believers in particular. We are to fear our God and honor government leaders. They hold an office that we hold in honor. We know we cannot always endorse the evil of their character, but God is the judge who will one day deal with all men justly. We still respect and honor the role that they're in, as whatever that is. Now, he changes gears and says, let's carry this authority submission to another area, and that is of employers and employees. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and gentle, but also to those who are unreasonable. For this finds favor. If for the sake of conscience toward God, a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly, For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated, you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, this finds favor with God. When this letter was written, there were approximately 60 million slaves in the Roman Empire. So a slave could be a doctor, uh, a teacher, every job there was, 60 million of them were slaves. They were considered possessions then who had no rights. Certainly there were some who were loved by their masters and treated fairly, but for the most part, they found themselves often owned by unkind or cruel men or women. Peter commands servants to be submissive to their masters with all respect. He clarifies that this is to be done not only with the reasonable kind of owner or employer, but even to those who are unreasonable. For the believer, the mindset at work is to do your service and your work as if you're doing it for Christ himself. This can be so challenging, but this is nonetheless what God's word tells us to do. Clearly, to God and to believers, every person is important and has value, um, even though an employer may not think that. You may think this is irrelevant to you because you're not an employer, but I was thinking about how many times people in our culture think Everyone's here exists, you know, to serve me, you know, like everybody. I'm the employer of the world. So every waitress is to do her job in a stunning way when waiting on me. And the DMV people should be polite and kind when I come in, right? Oh. Well, whether, whatever, we are still to dispo- uh, show respect and gratitude to all. So why should a person honor a difficult boss who makes life miserable? At least with a boss, you can try to find a different job. 
The poor slaves did not have that opportunity. Because this is what finds favor with God. God is pleased when a believer does their work with a humble heart and a submissive attitude. Believers are not to retaliate when they have a cruel or intolerant or a fool for a boss. As a matter of fact, bearing up and enduring work for a harsh, unpleasant person actually pleases the Lord. Suffering as a slave would have included physical abuse and verbal abuse, yet here they are still instructed to endure it with patience, realizing it is God you are serving, it is God who will ultimately make all of this right. Trials often come into believers' lives in the workplace. These are opportunities for spiritual growth, opportunities to shine as a light in the darkness, And the rewards for doing so are so certain that when we arrive in our home in heaven and hear those words, well done, good and faithful servants, and await the day when he hands out the rewards, it will be worth it all. Now for the final example for all these people who are struggling and you, if you've been abused and mistreated and unfairly dealt with and ripped off or whatever the situation, our example of how we endure suffering is the next closing verses. For you have been called for this purpose, since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. I mean, he could have just spoke the word and said, you're all dead, you know, but he didn't. Uh, While suffering, uh, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. That's the key. He kept entrusting himself to God the Father who will judge and make it all right. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we would die to sin and live to righteousness. This really jumped out at me as I was studying this week because we know he died on the cross to save our souls. We know he died on the cross so we could be forgiven, so we could be adopted into his family, have an inheritance, all those things. But here, clearly, he bore our sins in his body so that we would die to our sins. How serious do we need to take putting to death the sin in our lives that we just let go on and on, rampaging through our lives? We are to live for righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. For you were continually strained like sheep, but now you've returned to the shepherd and guardian of your souls. So Peter says, for you have been called for this purpose. When you trust Jesus to be your Lord and Savior, what accompanies that gift of salvation, ladies, is suffering for righteousness' sake. All who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. The suffering is the experience of every believer because we live in a world dominated by Satan dominated by family and friends who have been deluded by the evil system of this world. Peter's reminding these slaves that they will indeed suffer, and it is their calling to suffer, but just as Christ suffered for them, he has left a great example of how you go through suffering. Peter's point is that Christians are to respond to suffering just like our example Jesus. The purpose in our suffering is to conform us to be more like him in character, Just like a little child tries to walk in the footprints of their parents at the beach in wet sand, or if you're up north in a snow print, so we're to follow the path of Jesus. We're to take the same road as Jesus. 
Verse 22 paraphrases Isaiah 53 and states that Christ was sinless and perfect. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit in his mouth. But when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He did not try to defend himself. He didn't start threatening people. He didn't become bitter because people were cruel and unkind and unjust and unfair. He didn't lash out at his enemies. Rather, he kept entrusting himself to the one who judges righteously. Jesus delivered over to God, his heavenly father and heavenly judge, all the cruelty, all the violence done to his loving heart. He trusted the father to deal with all the wrong done. And he is our example to follow when we are treated, when we suffer unjustly. Unjustly, We like, we like Jesus must entrust our mistreatment to the father. If someone has been cruel to you, it is not your role to get even with them, to punish them. As you know, Romans tells us, vengeance is mine, says the Lord, I will repay. Your loving Holy Father will address all of the wrongs done in his own time, in his own way. When he bore our sins on the body and the cross, it was not just, as I said, to save our souls, but so we would die to sin, ladies. I don't think we take it seriously enough, our call to put to death our flesh. That means you don't have to eat what you don't need to eat. You don't have to buy what you don't need to buy. You don't have to do this, that, or the other thing because your flesh wants it. The innocent one stooped under the weight of our sin as he suffered unjustly, and he has set us free from the power of sin so that we no longer have sin ruling our lives. We can put it to death. For by his wounds you were healed. That's the whole point. He healed you spiritually. This presents a picture of Jesus here with his lacerated back after the scourging by the soldiers. The Romans used a whip, as you know, usually three strands with brass and sharp pointed bones and all kinds of lead so that when the condemned criminal was struck by this, it tore out the flesh and everything under it. They were condemned to die and often before that, were, had to go through this horror where they were tied in a stooping position, hands behind their back and then attached to a poster pillar. And the stripes or the wounds refers to the bloody agony with each blow. And Jesus endured this for each one who would trust in him as their sin substitute. He took all of this for us. And this is how we are spiritually healed from our sin. This is not talking about physical healing. The context is spiritual healing from our sin, the healing of our soul. Verse 25 then pictures that all of us, as we come to faith in Christ, we're like sheep that have gone astray. But now we've returned to the shepherd, or the guardian of our souls. In the context, we see, I have seen slaves who have been suffering unjustly by perverse, awful masters. But now they have an overseer, and that is Jesus, the shepherd. There is comfort and joy knowing that the all-seeing eye of our loving God is always on us, always watching tenderly over us. And our response must be then to obey his word and his commands. As believers, we must entrust our suffering times to his loving care. Such a loving Savior, if you don't know him, is calling you to turn from the sins you are aware of in your life to repent and surrender your life to him. He paid the price for your sins with his own blood. And make sure that he is your shepherd. And if you already know him, then ladies, you must die daily, moment by moment, to those sins that nailed him to the cross. 
We must entrust our lives to the great judge of the universe and let him deal with all the wrongs ever done to us. We have been given the truth of the light. And ladies, we have to walk in the light. Lord, I thank you for the truths of your word and how practical they are. Lord, I pray that everyone in this room would be engaged in the war and not go through half the day not even realize they haven't even fought for righteousness in their lives. Lord, help us to be women who put to death actively those sins which maybe we've let slide for way too long. Lord, I pray we would be vigilant. You bore your, our sins on, in your body on the cross so that we would die to sin. Help us to be obedient to do that. In your name, amen. Thank you, ladies.